Today, Dr. Patrick O'Neill will be talking about behavioral aspects of weight management. Patrick M. O'Neill is Professor of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at the Medical University of South Carolina, where he is Director of the longstanding multidisciplinary MUSC Weight Management Center. He received his B.S. in Economics from Louisiana State University and his M.S. and Ph.D. in Clinical Psychology from the University of Georgia. Dr. O'Neill has been professionally involved in obesity since 1977. He has been the principal investigator for a large number of externally funded clinical trials of weight loss agents and interventions. He is the author of more than 100 professional publications, chapters, and presentations primarily concerning obesity and its management. Dr. O'Neill is a longstanding active member of the Obesity Society, having served as counselor, vice president, and president. We're very happy to have him with us today, and we know you're excited to get started. So without further delay, please welcome Dr. Patrick O'Neill. Thank you, Kevin, and thanks to all of you for uh, joining and for tolerating our uh, delays in getting to you. Uh, I'm delighted to be able to be here this afternoon to uh, talk about some of the behavioral aspects of what we apparently are all involved in, which is helping patients to uh, lose weight and maintain a healthier weight. If you think about it, we all are very familiar with the energy balance equation, and, and it seems so simple, doesn't it, that to lose weight, you need to adjust your intake and your energy expenditure so that you're burning more calories than you're taking in. But if only it were that simple, we know that it's much, much harder to do these things than to uh, say them for a number of reasons, and one of which is that today we live in what Dr. Kelly Brownell has referred to as a toxic environment. This is an environment that is um, characterized by an abundance of very high-calorie, highly palatable, readily available food so that we can obtain calories more than we need uh, in many, many, many locations. And this is just a few examples of that, including on the right side of this picture, you see two big stand-up signs at a local Yum outlet here uh, in Charleston, and it points out one of the other features of our current food environment, particularly the marketing end, which is these signs would have you think that you could eat things like that double-down sandwich uh, and still look like the model on the right-hand side, and we know that that's not terribly likely if you're going to eat these sorts of foods on a regular basis. At the same time, the world most of us live in is one that uh, requires fewer and fewer calories of energy expenditure to get through the day. More of us are occupying sedentary positions, may have long drives to get to and from work, um, may uh, have a lot of sedentary activity, activities that we have to engage in at home. And uh, even when we decide to try to rectify that, to go out and burn some calories, it seems there's always ways to avoid burning any more calories than the absolute minimum, as you can see here. So all these things in the environment really are stacking the deck against uh, the person who's trying to, to lose weight. In addition, we've got an increasing understanding of the numerous physiological and genetic factors that can make losing weight and keeping it off much more difficult for some people than for other people. And to get to today's topic, one of the real difficulties of weight control is that it requires changes in our behavior. 
both in the short term and in the long term. And one of the things to understand about behavior and changing behavior is that if you uh, look at it from the standpoint of operant conditioning, a lot of our behavior is really determined by what happens immediately after we engage in it. If I do something and then soon after uh, something very positive, to me at least, something positive happens, I'm more likely to do that behavior again. If, on the other hand, something um, negative happens immediately afterwards, I'm less likely to do it again. Well, if you take this framework and apply it to what we're asking our patients to do on a day-to-day basis, let's look at the perverse uh, contingencies that obtain for many of the behaviors that we want to either encourage or discourage. When it comes to weight control, a lot of the unhealthful behaviors really do lead to immediate rewards. If you think about trying to pass up a tasty dessert after dinner, uh, doing the wrong thing means that you would have that dessert. The immediate consequences are that it's going to taste good, and in fact, in anticipating that, you can be pretty certain that the taste will be very good, it's rewarding, and may be a known outcome to you. At the same time, the long-term consequences of these unhealthful behaviors are really undesirable, needless to say, and unhealthy. But at the same time, they're remote, they're in the future, uh, and they're uncertain. So what really is going to control our behavior is what happens immediately thereafter. Um, If you look at doing the right thing, let's say it's it's passing up that dessert, well, immediately that's going to be difficult. You might be wanting it dessert, you're watching the other people at dinner enjoying their desserts, so the immediate consequences are not positive. They at best may be neutral or even aversive. Uh, On the other hand, long term, we know that by limiting our intake, it'll help us to get to a healthier weight, but again, that's long term. That's down the road, Uh, and it's when you get right down to it, somewhat uncertain. So this is the way the contingencies are stacked up uh, against our patients who are trying to uh, achieve a healthier weight. And it means that we need to help them modify some of these behaviors in spite of that. You've all seen the treatment pyramid guide uh, that's been around for a long time, which outlines the different type, different options available for um, treatment of obesity. And you can see that depending on, on the level of BMI, that there may be other options such as pharmacotherapy or bariatric surgery. But regardless, at the base of all of this are necessary changes in diet and activity, what we call lifestyle change. So we look at pharmacotherapy and surgery not as alternatives to lifestyle change, but as enhancements to it. And this is one way that we use to help our patients here at the medical university understand what we mean by lifestyle change. It's this simple mnemonic here. Obviously, it includes changes in activity, changes in dietary patterns. Again, those are easier said than done. And so there are a number of other behavioral techniques that can be implemented and other behavioral patterns and thinking patterns, cognitive or thinking patterns, that need to be changed. And, of course, utilizing social support can support those behavior and cognitive changes and, more importantly, support the changes in activity level and dietary uh, changes. Now, we can list each of you, I'm sure, on this call knows pretty well exactly what types of dietary and activity 
changes and behavioral changes you want to encourage your patients to make. But again, easier said than done. Why? Obviously, if we're asking people to introduce some new behaviors, they may be displacing older, much better established uh, competing behaviors and habits. Some patients may not have the skills that it takes to do some of the things we're asking, whether it's calculating calorie content or engaging in certain types of exercise. Some people are unfamiliar with what we're asking them to do. Uh, we know that people have limits on the time that they can devote uh, to their weight control efforts. I think it's important to remember that we might see somebody uh, for maybe a half hour a week or something like that, and it's easy to lose sight of the fact that they've got all those other hours of the uh, week uh, in their lives in which they're doing other things. So we've got a lot of competition for their time. And as a result of all of this, a lot of times it can feel very overwhelming to the patient. Uh, so one way that is sometimes discussed to encourage patients into beginning to begin uh, is what's called motivational interviewing. And this is a, really a pattern of engaging the patient to discuss about the matters that we are there to address, but which follows the lead of the patient to a large extent, not completely, but to a large extent. So it includes these elements. We want to really engage the patient who we're just starting out with. We're just beginning this process with them and talking about what they hope to achieve, uh, what their concerns are, what their hopes are, and then try to narrow the conversation with them so that the conversation can quickly turn to uh, more specific habits that the and behaviors that the patient may be willing to change. At that point, it's important to learn why the patient wants to change those behaviors or why the patient wants to lose weight. What are the benefits that he or she uh, anticipates? How important do they place this in their life? How confident are they in their ability to make these changes and how prepared are they to change? And then go from there to a plan. We know that if you just start out your conversation with the patient by saying, okay, here's the plan. I want you to do A, B, and C. You're not very likely to really elicit their, uh, their full participation in that. So these earlier steps can be pretty helpful. Now, people have talked about motivational interviewing, although I've described it more as kind of an approach, uh, but sometimes it's been viewed as a, a sort of series of steps that could be reproduced by a number of people in a number of uh, situations. And looking at it in that way, it has been studied very methodically uh, where these components have been operationalized uh, into a number of steps. And there have been a number of studies that have actually looked at what difference it makes to add uh, a motivational interviewing component to existing weight loss programs. This slide shows you the results of a meta-analysis published a few years ago that looked at a number of such studies. And what you can see is a pattern of, of uh, effects that motivational interviewing had. And nearly in all but one of these studies, it actually did lead to at least numerically, if not significantly, uh, greater weight loss. But the net result, the weighted average uh, of all of these studies, as you can see here, 
uh, is that motivational interviewing added something less than two kilos to the weight loss that would otherwise be achieved with the programs to which motivational interviewing was uh, added. So, again, it's not a cure-all, it's not an end-all, but it can be a helpful approach in beginning your work with your patients. Let's assume that we have settled with the patient on some target behaviors that we want to uh, try to begin changing. One important technique that you can use is to help the patient focus on setting specific behavioral goals. I'm sure you have had the experience often of asking a weight loss patient, what, what are your goals for this week, what are your goals for this month? And typically the answer you get will be how many pounds they want to lose. I think it's very important to help the patient accept that, whatever that objective might be, but then to pull back and say, okay, what are the things that you will need to do in order to accomplish that objective? And that's what we mean by behavioral goal setting. So we want to help patients select some specific behaviors that they will try to adopt uh, and continue with. And to do this, it's helpful to use what are called SMART goals. You've probably heard of this, SMART being an acronym for specific goals, exactly what are we talking about. It should be quantifiable. It should hopefully be attainable by that patient at this time. Uh, we might want to think about using contingencies, setting contingencies to have a reward to encourage the patient to meet that goal and then set a time frame in which it has to be achieved. So we might start out with the patient saying, well, I'm going to try to start exercising. Well, that's neither specific, measurable, or pretty much any of these other things. So let's try to drill down and help the patient make it a little more specific. So rather than start exercising, can we say uh, start walking? And can we make it measurable, which means we've got to quantify it. So could it be start walking? Maybe the patient might say, okay, I'm going to walk four miles every day. Well, if they're not doing anything currently and they have family and job responsibilities, that may not be very attainable. So let's pull back and say for this first week, I'm going to walk one mile three times within the coming week. And if I do that, then I will stream this particular program that I want to watch on television as a reward for making that goal because, as we discussed earlier, simply going out and walking on three days in one week may not lead naturally to the patient feeling any better or experiencing anything naturally that's going to be highly positive. So we might want to help them set up a contingency so that they can encourage themselves to follow that, that goal. Uh, and this sort of illustrates the principle of shaping, which is rewarding successive approximations to the target behavior. We might want to encourage the patient ultimately to get to where she or he is exercising at a moderately intensive level for 30 minutes nearly every day. But we're not there to begin with, so we want to start out with what's possible and then move toward the direction of the target level of that behavior ultimately. So in addition to goal setting and to shaping, a really powerful category of behavioral techniques is what we call self-monitoring. And this simply means observing and recording one or more aspects of your behavior. 
and I'm sure you can understand there's three logical targets, three most logical targets uh, of self-monitoring when it comes to weight control or uh, caloric intake, exercise and activity level, and uh, ultimately weight. As far as monitoring dietary intake, uh, one thing I always remind patients of, is, for starters, is don't forget the liquid calories. So I try to remember not to say food intake exclusively, but calorie or dietary intake. And there's any number of ways to do this. You can start with old school paper and pencil. We still have patients who uh, prefer some of our little paper booklets that we have available for them to use. And, of course, as you know, increasingly there's a number of uh, different apps that are out there that can facilitate uh, recording of caloric intake uh, as well as providing the caloric information uh, for different foods. And most of these have very large catalogs of information, very large databases that they can uh, draw on to provide the caloric information uh, per unit, of uh, per quantity of it. Um, and they will also, over time, learn what the pa- patient has entered before and it becomes progressively easier to use them to um, to record intake. Uh, one caveat that I have uh, when it comes to these and other instances of using technology is not to make assumptions about the patient's readiness or desire to use the technology uh, options solely based on their age. Uh, we have uh, had patients in their 20s who prefer to use booklets, paper and pencil, we have patients in their 70s who are just all into uh, apps and all kind of technology. So never assume that the patient is or is not well, likely to use these kinds of things solely based on age. Um, we've got some things going, getting a little more futuristic uh, for monitoring uh, dietary, dietary intake as well, which incorporate take, uh, taking pictures uh, of them. And... Um, you can see a couple of examples here. Uh, these are a couple of screen captures from the website of the RISE uh, app, which allows you to submit photos of what you're eating uh, to one of their counselors and get feedback, such as you have in the second shot. Um, there's another uh, more advanced uh, program that's uh, still primarily for research, although you can find the app uh, at least at the App Store for iPhones, called Smart Intake 3, uh, developed by Dr. Corby Martin and colleagues uh, at the Pennington Center in Baton Rouge. And the idea with uh, this uh, system is that it uses pattern recognition. People take a picture of what they're eating and drinking. They put a little calibration card next to it so that you can the uh, system can judge size and perspective based on that card and then it's automatically analyzed, and very often uh, it's, the system can automatically identify what the food is and how much. The participant is asked to uh, submit both the before picture and the after, so it can calculate how much they've consumed, and then it can provide either automated feedback or sometimes a, a live human will have to intervene to provide um, clinician feedback. So there's a number of ways to pe- for people to keep track of their intake. Uh, I think probably the most important thing to focus on is use some means of recording uh, your intake because we know that very often we have very charitable memories when it comes to how much we've consumed. 
Another target of self-monitoring is obviously activity level, and you're well familiar, no doubt, with the many varieties of these that exist, going back to old-fashioned pedometers to various types of uh, digital wearables, either that fit on your belt or on your wrist and can provide lots of different kinds of feedback, uh, be it in steps or converting it to an estimate of calories burned uh, and so on. And one of the things that I, we find clinically is important to emphasize with patients when it comes to using these is to focus more on the relative pattern of their activity level. Um, if your patient says, look, I, I measured it and I took 100 steps yesterday afternoon and counted them and it only gave me credit for 98, well, that's close enough as long as it's pretty consistently off by the same amount. So the important thing is not so much judging the activity level against some absolute, but rather judging it against what your activity level was the day before, the week before, the month before. We also think it's very important to monitor weight. Now, I know that over the decades there's been some controversy about how often we should encourage patients to weigh. And uh, I will tell you that for a long, long, long time here at the MUSC Weight Management Center, we've been encouraging our patients to weigh daily, no more frequently than once a day, uh, to weigh once a day, and further to keep a graph, a visual record of what their weight's doing. Uh, we're not talking about writing down numbers, but rather producing a graph um, so that you can see at a quick glimpse uh, exactly what your current pattern of weight changes are. Now, it's important if you're going to encourage your patients to do this to put a couple of minutes in up front on education about what it takes to lose one pound of body fat, uh, you know, the old 3,500 calories to a pound of body fat versus what it takes to lose a pound of water, which is simply one pint of water. So we try to make sure our patients know that on a day-to-day -day basis, their weight today does not reflect whether they did a good job on their plan yesterday. They could have done a magnificent job and it pops up for a couple of pounds, or they could have veered wildly off of their plan and they might be showing a drop of a pound, but rather to get that data point and uh, put it on the graph so that they can see over the week, over the month, over the longer term, uh, what their weight is actually doing. Uh, there are obviously more advanced ways to do this than with our old-fashioned graph, but you are welcome to go to our website and download the blank graphs uh, if you would like to use them with your patients. Um, this will redirect you to our current website of muschealth.org slash weight. Now, obviously, there's some more advanced ways to do it now than just sitting on, standing on an old-fashioned scale. We know there's a variety of wireless scales uh, that you can sync with your uh, computer and with your smartphone app, and it'll do all the graphing for you, and you can, again, see the pattern over time. So this can make it even easier for your patients uh, to keep track of this. Um, one caveat about this is for many of these apps, the scale, the y-axis, if you will, on the weight graph will depend on how far away the patient is from the target weight goal that they have entered into the application. And so if they do have 50, 60, 70 pounds to lose, then the weight changes may be minimized on the graph. So 
in these cases, we can encourage the patient perhaps to uh, cheat the app a little bit and show a higher target weight so that they can greater appreciate smaller changes uh, on a weekly uh, basis or over the course of the month so that it won't look quite as flat as this one at the top right does. Uh, now, you may have questioned what I said about the daily weighing. Uh, there's been a lot of lore over the many years about uh, not weighing more than once a week, if that often. Uh, we now have data from a number of studies that have looked at the frequency of weighing oneself versus success at weight control. This was an earlier study done by Lindy et al. It was a post hoc analysis of two different studies that they had done. One was a weight gain prevention trial, uh, and that's shown in the white bars. Uh, the other was a, a very minimal weight loss intervention at the work site. And at the end of two-year follow-ups in each of the studies, they asked the simple question, how often do you weigh yourself, and then grouped the participants' weight changes by the frequency of their self-weighing that they reported. And as you can see, there's an almost linear relationship to frequency of, of weighing, only up to once a day. Uh, but the people who did weigh more frequently were um, losing, were doing better in terms of weight control than were the uh, others. Um, now, you could look at that and say, well, that's retrospective, and so the people who are doing better at weight control are going to find it more painless to get on the scale. That's certainly a valid argument. Uh, a later study did uh, look at frequency of weighing as more of an independent variable and assigned patients who had lost weight to one of three weight maintenance conditions, uh, two of which recommended uh, daily weighing. Then they were utilizing feedback on either an Internet basis or face-to-face. -face. And what they found in general was that those folks who were doing the daily weighing in the daily weighing conditions did better at weight loss maintenance. But they further subdivided the groups into, over the course of the study, how long, how often they had been submitting weights. And you can see, again, those who weighed more frequently, who weighed daily, had less of a weight regain. So, again, pretty strong evidence that this can be a good thing as long as the person understands what they uh, are seeing when they get on the scale and see one day's weight. Now, obviously, you can look at ways to integrate all these uh, different self-monitoring uh, you know, examples, a number of apps and online plans that uh, can use that. Uh, we actually have started a system in our own clinic, um, for primarily for weight loss maintenance at this time, where we have patients with uh, digital activity trackers and uh, the synchronized digital scales, wireless scales, and they uh, get on the scale every day, hopefully, and every day they're uh, weight and their activity data are synchronized and uploaded to a platform that we use. Uh, they can also upload recorded calorie intake. An individual member of our staff reviews their information on a weekly basis, records a brief uh, feedback uh, session for them on the computer and uploads it so that the patient then can uh, get feedback at their convenience. And we, uh, this is still in the earlier, relatively early stages, but we've we're seeing a pretty favorable response on the parts of patients. Now, self-monitoring is very important, but again, you've got to do it for it to be helpful, um, and it's not always easy for people to begin and to continue. It's also a behavior change. Uh, so here are some things that you can uh, try to remember to help your patients uh, 
stick to a self-monitoring program more consistently, at least in the beginning of their work with you. You want to remember when asking people to record their caloric intake that you want to communicate that you're after accuracy more than desirability so that they're not afraid to tell you uh, what they're actually doing versus what they think you want to see. Now, um, I'd like to switch to another issue that I think can be uh, important in encouraging patients to begin and to maintain behavior changes in a weight loss program. And that has to do with the issue of expectations. Uh, this shows you a random sample, 34 patients' weekly weight changes in a 15-week weight loss program that we offer. It's very structured, protocol-based, uh, relies uh, to a significant extent on meal replacement products, shakes and bars, including Robard bars. Um, and the average weight loss in this program uh, for people who complete it is almost 10%, about 9.9%. Well, this shows you the actual weight change trajectories from a random sample of people on whom we had weekly weight change data. And so even with a very standardized program administered over a standard period of time with a standard diet recommendation and provision, you can see that there's a wide array of weight changes. And so I think it's helpful that patients understand that everybody will lose at their own pace and further that uh, their individual road to weight loss may not be a straight line, but rather may be a hopefully a downward trend over time. And I think you can see this uh, with the next graph, which is a sample of all the patients in that database we had who were essentially had lost precisely uh, 10% of their body weight. And you can see that although these 18 patients wound up at the same point, they got there by fairly differing paths. So we want to be able to assure patients right off the bat that there will be some weeks when they don't lose as much as they should. That's not cause for uh, disappointment or discouragement, but rather just part of the territory. So, again, trying to engender realistic expectations, I think, is is important to helping the patient to, again, initiate and continue behavior changes. And, again, once you start with a behavior change, keeping it going, it's just like losing weight and maintaining the weight loss, keeping it going can have its own challenges, several of which are shown here. Um, when you're losing weight, when you're just starting something new, novelty is nice uh, as, a, as a reinforcer. Uh, when people are losing weight, there's a, an abundance of natural reinforcers, either what they're seeing in the mirror or what other people are saying to them. But over time, uh, those things drop off. One of the things, speaking of expectations, that we know can influence how well somebody sticks with a weight loss program and with their behavior changes is the whether the benefits that they accrue from losing weight match up to what they hoped would happen when they lose weight. Uh, you have probably seen with some of your patients with long-time obesity that they can frequently scapegoat their obesity and blame all the problems in their life for on, on their obesity and expect that weight loss will make everything bright and rosy. And, of course, we know that won't happen. So helping patients to take a, do a reality check on what their initial expectations are may be helpful and also uh, getting them to really focus on what benefits they have achieved by losing weight can be helpful. 
Uh, and remember, too, that when you're losing weight, that's over a finite period of time. Uh, maintaining a weight loss, maintaining those behavior changes, hopefully is for a very long time because it's a lifelong challenge. Um, some other issues with keeping behavior changes going are shown here. Um, sometimes people will come to you having had a long history of losing and regaining weight. Uh, we know that um, you know you'll, you've got patients who will tell you I've you know gained and lost the same 30 pounds 10, 10 20 times in my life. So they may have some uh, initial and inherent pessimism about how successful they can be in the long run based on those past experiences. So I think it's hopeful to focus on what are the new successes that you're now experiencing. And uh, there can be sometimes some social discouragement about how likely somebody is to maintain their weight loss by people who may have observed them lose and gain and lose and regain weight over the, the years. Uh, a number of years ago, I had occasion uh, to just overhear a conversation between two attorneys, actually, uh, and this is not a lawyer joke. It's it really happened, uh, but nothing to do with my clinic work here. But I happened to hear these guys talking, and one of them was telling the other one, yeah, I just started a diet at such and such a place. And the other one said, I can't believe you're doing that again. You know you're going to regain it all. So that's from well-educated people. So you can imagine that uh, many of our patients do encounter this kind of negative expectations on the part of people around them as well as perhaps themselves. Um, one danger in the long term is what we call black or white or per black and white or perfectionistic thinking, where people feel like they have to be sticking to their plan perfectly, a hundred percent, or else they are perfect failures. And we know that that might work in the very short term, but in the long term, nobody's perfect. And so we want to help people prepare for dealing with some of those setbacks that they will inevitably incur. Some people find that uh, living at a reduced weight is not only less positive than they thought it would be, but it might bring about other sources of discomfort. Uh, occasionally you may see uh, a patient, particularly female patients, who become uncomfortable uh, when they lose weight with increased uh, romantic attention. Uh, and so I think that's worth being sensitive to. And uh, also we want to remember that uh, psychiatric disorders are there are a number of psychiatric disorders that are highly prevalent in the general population, and that's certainly the case among that large portion of the population which has obesity. Uh, and in fact, in the case of depression, for example, and anxiety, uh, we know that those conditions actually are more prevalent among people with obesity. This shows you data from a national uh, survey study that was done that uh, interviewed patients about symptoms of uh, depression and anxiety uh, and also asked them for their height and weight so that BMI could be calculated. And you can see the results for men in white bars and women in the dark bars as a function of BMI. Uh, the top bars, prevalence of current depression, middle bar lifetime depression, and then anxiety. And you can see, uh, particularly for women, there's essentially, once you get up from the healthy weight range, it's a linear increase in the prevalence of depression and anxiety with increasing BMI. Uh, for men, it looks like it really kicks in around a BMI of 40 and above. 
So we, I say this not to suggest in any way that obesity is a psychiatric disorder, certainly not, not to suggest that every person with obesity should be assumed to have depression or any other psychiatric disorder, but just simply to note uh, that the prevalence is higher among people with uh, obesity. And this is a bi-directional relationship. There's an interesting review of a number of long-term follow-up uh, studies, and they found that initial depression predicts later obesity, initial obesity predicts subsequent depression. So it's clearly a reciprocal relationship. So what can we do to help people maintain the behavior changes we've, uh, we and they, and particularly they, have worked so hard for? Well, since we're talking about depression, if you find that the patient is experiencing some psychiatric or psychological distress, um, don't be reluctant to at least raise the possibility of a mental health referral. I think it's important to help people periodically review the successes that they've had. Remember, people coming in to see us for help with weight loss typically have a long series of failure experiences behind them, uh, and so help they may focus more on setbacks than on achievements. So helping them to have a realistic appreciation for the uh, positive changes they've, uh, d they've achieved, I think, is very important. Remember that we are um, asking people to restrict their use of something which is almost universally rewarding, namely food. So it's very important to uh, encourage patients to find new sources of reward, uh, both in general for enjoyment in their lives and also for things they can use to reinforce their continued behavior changes. I mentioned earlier about the dangers of black and white thinking. Uh, we encourage, on the contrary, what's called matter of degree. Quantify your level of success. Were you 100% successful with your exercise goal or 80% or 60 or what? Um, when it comes to boredom or just some old, old behavior changes no longer working, try to find some... Um, new ways of achieving the same thing. And in the longer run, I think it's most important that we don't expect patients to continue with maybe the whole kitchen sink uh, suggestions that we've made to them initially, but rather to help the patient focus for them on what their most important behaviors are. What is it that they have found to be most critical to uh, their successful weight control? And again, break out the self-monitoring when important um, we we encourage the weight monitoring as a lifetime uh, matter. It takes just seconds a day. Uh, we don't expect people necessarily to um, keep track of their caloric intake over that longer period of time. We know they're going to lose their activity trackers or they'll break, but certainly the weight monitoring in the long run is really, really important. And we actually ask people if they're using a graph to set a line on their graph if you cut three or four pounds above where they are, treat that as a do not cross line, and have a written plan for what they'll do if their weight goes up uh, above that line. So in closing, just a few reminders here. I think we want to remind ourselves and our patients that this is a long-term challenge, both as far as the time frame for weight control, but also just that initial achievement of a behavior change. We know that the guidelines for lifestyle change interventions for obesity basically um, suggest at least 14 uh, sessions over the course of six months. 
I think we want to remember and help our patients remember that uh, the road is not always smooth. Uh, and I think remember in the long term, too, that partnership, you're working with the patient as a partnership, uh, is uh, very key to their success. So at this time, uh, I appreciate your attention that you've devoted to this and, uh, and your time. And now I think we can take uh, questions. Thank you so much, Dr. O'Neill. Love your picture there at the top. Uh, so to our audience, please feel free to continue sending in your questions through the Q&A function, and we'll get to as many as we can with the time we have left. Um, first question I have for you, Dr. O'Neill, is do you have some suggestions for new behaviors to replace food rewards? Uh, it's you know it's going to vary from person to person. Uh, we you know we've got a lengthy list of activities that we appropriated from an old survey um, of pleasurable activities uh, that was originally done back in the early 70s or even late 60s for a study of depression. But have people make a list of things they used to enjoy that they haven't done recent recently? Uh, maybe either because they didn't feel like they could physically or because they just forgot life got too busy. Have them um, think a little bit about things that they have always wanted to do but couldn't. And then some very very short-term kinds of things as well in the sense of, okay, well, if you have an hour that you just that just fell into your lap, you were supposed to do something and it fell through, what can you do in that hour that might be more enjoyable? Again, we try to encourage people to think about some active pursuits as well as other sedentary pursuits. And to the extent that we can find some rewarding activities that are not very compatible uh, with simultaneous eating, that's all the better. Okay. Um, do you feel that technology, such as apps and fitness devices and whatnot, do you, do you feel that they put too much responsibility on the patient to self-regulate their behaviors without supervision of the healthcare provider? I certainly don't think that an app is a replacement for a good clinician by any means. Uh, I don't even, it's certainly not a replacement for a friend. Um, but they can simply be tools that people can use in their work with their professional pro clinician or uh, work with a weight loss partner that they might have. Um, I think the way it has to be presented is important, and your, your point is really well taken, that you know this app is not going to take the burden off of you. It's not going to place it all on you either, but we want you to be able to use this app as an, as an aid. Have you done any work with uh, ex uh, assessing readiness to change? If you have, can you elaborate on it and how it might affect outcomes? Um, I'm a little bit of a heretical psychologist when it comes to uh, this. I think there's been a lot made of the trans-theoretical model, and I think it boils down to what is this patient ready to do at this time. Uh, patients vary uh, from behavior to behavior in terms of how ready they are to make a change. Um, they vary over time as well. And I don't think it's anything approaching rocket science. It's just, okay, here are four things that you might want to work on. Which of these do you think you could take on right now? Okay. Um, any interve intervention guidelines for patients who use food to regulate their dysregulated nervous systems due to childhood trauma? I mean, as you know, of course, trauma takes uh, trauma treatment takes time, and in the meantime, uh, any, are there any suggestions for patients that are attempting healthful behavior changes that are trauma sensitive? 
Right. Well, I, again, this, you know, typically you would want to consider a referral to uh, a mental health provider with expertise in dealing with trauma, and that is not the case for all mental health providers. Uh, I don't think it's something that can take place solely within a weight control program uh, unless you happen to have those specialized providers um, at hand. Um, if you're talking about the patient who's using food for emotional regulation, then trying to find out what the nature of that emotional regulation is that they're trying to achieve. Is it um, dealing with depressed mood? Is it dealing more likely with anxiety? Uh, is it an avoidance? Uh, those are all important questions to ask. Um, and again, when I mentioned earlier that some patients might uh, feel threatened or uncomfortable at a reduced weight, it's not unheard of for a survivor of past sexual trauma, uh, typically female survivors of past sexual trauma, to feel more exposed as they lose weight. We've had patients tell us, you know, my fat was protecting me. And so, of course, being on the on the lookout for emergence of that kind of a problem is important, and then making a wise referral, I think, is important as well. And again, trying to help the patient focus on what they they can change at the time. About what additional behavioral factors do you consider when a revision patient has undergone at least two revision procedures, not due to medical complications? I assume you're talking about bariatric surgery revisions? Yeah, um, a band sleeve, and uh, perhaps now they want the uh, the, uh, the D-switch procedure. Yeah, I, I really can't address the specific uh, procedures that may have been done uh, or may have been revised. Um, I think in any of those cases, yeah, a, a, a very sensitive and uh, serious discussion with the patient uh, about what did they change at the same time that they had their past procedure and what did they not change that might have been um, key to their success. Uh, you're talking about the patients who get a revision because it's not successful or because they're not adhering to the required program, I assume, required dietary changes. And in those cases, I think taking a, taking a hard look at the uh, behavioral patterns at the time is, is really important. Thank you, Dr. O'Neill, and thank you to our audience for joining us for today's Robard Corporation podcast, Behavioral Aspects of Weight Management. As a reminder, you can subscribe to all of Robard's podcasts for free by searching the phrase Robard Corporation on Apple's iTunes, Google Play Music, or by visiting SoundCloud at www.soundcloud.com. And if you'd like more information about treating obesity in your office or clinic, visit www.robard.com. Thank you.